I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this spooky season edition of the show... We're going to be talking about a classic cinematic master of the macabre, Todd Browning, the filmmaker behind such films as Universal Studios' massively successful 1931 hit, Dracula, and the controversial MGM chiller, Freaks. In the silent film era, Browning was known for his collaborations with Lon Chaney Jr., the actor known as the Man with a Thousand Faces, thanks to his playing roles as varied as the Phantom of the Opera and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. After the success of Dracula, Browning was set to make another spine-tingler that would have been utterly bonkers in the 1930s. Predating William Friedkin's The Exorcist and George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, Todd Browning's The Revolt of the Dead featured a script that included demonic possession, human crucifixions, the stigmata, and even a zombie apocalypse. Unfortunately, the film did not come together. However, we do have a script. And that's what we're going to be talking about on this edition of the show with film historian Gary D. Rhodes and Robert Guffey, who worked together on the new book, Scripts from the Crypt, number 12, Todd Browning's The Revolt of the Dead. It's a fascinating conversation, and a long one as well, running just over two hours, in which we'll discuss the career of Todd Browning, movies like Freaks, 
The Holy Grill of Lost Movies, London After Midnight, and Todd Browning's Unmade Zombie Apocalypse Nightmare, The Revolt of the Dead. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Gary D. Rhodes and Robert Guffey. Welcome back to Parallax Views, two guests that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with. This is their second appearance on the show, first time together, though. Gary E. Rhodes, who we know as a scholar of Bela Lugosi uh, and horror cinema, classic horror cinema. Uh, Gary is actually one of our most popular guests uh, from the Bela Lugosi episode that we did last year. And Robert Guffey. Uh, who's also been on the show talking with us about Harlan Ellison and uh, other topics. So Gary Rhodes and Robert Guffey have a new book out. I'm very excited to be speaking about it. It's entitled Scripts from the Crypt Number 12, Todd Browning's Revolt of the Dead, which I believe is now available from Bear Manor Media. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. Thanks so very much for having us on to talk. Yes, I, I'm fine. Yeah, thank you for inviting both of us on. So uh, maybe before we get into uh, Todd Browning, who, for people that don't know, Todd Browning was the director behind the Bela Lugosi Universal horror movie classic, Dracula, as well as other films, including my favorite, Freaks, which I think is one of the most brilliantly subversive horror films of the 20th century. Uh, Todd Browning also did movies like uh, Devil Doll and Mark of the Vampire, as well as a number of movies uh, with Lon Chaney, such as The Unholy Three. We'll get into that, but maybe first we should get into uh, what the series uh, scripts from the crypt is all about. I believe, uh, Gary, you've worked on a number of them with Tom Weaver. Yes, thanks again for having us. Uh, the uh, series script from Scripts from the Crypt uh, is not all that dissimilar to a series that came out in the 1990s from Magic Image that were universal horror scripts published with modern text to, to give them a bit of historical context. As regards uh, script from the, Scripts from the Crypt, Tom Weaver started the series and it was an effort to bring about scripts that do survive of various types, films that, bit, that were made, films that necessarily weren't necessarily made, but that don't otherwise exist readily for people to access in archives or so forth. You know, things that survive in the hands of, of collectors, uh, sometimes one-of-a-kind copies. And so it's a wonderful series. I think uh, the series has been featured some on... Uh, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 in the past year. So Tom had, Tom's a, a close friend and colleague of many years of mine, and he's uh, he's had some good success with the series, and I've been very happy to be a part of it. And I, I was going to say, just to plug Tom, uh, he's a great historian of film in his own right. I think he's even written a book on um, John Carradine, if I remember correctly. So he's written yeah, so many yeah. books, but really yeah. brilliant. So uh, before, before we... Uh, get into anything else maybe for listeners that don't know if I, I if i have younger listeners uh, who is todd browning and what is his importance uh, to cinema uh, 
Do you want to take that, Robert, or, or do you want to take that one, Gary? Robert, please go ahead. Sure. I Well, of course, Todd Browning would be most well known for having directed Dracula, his most famous film with Bill Lugosi in 1931 that kicked off entire modern uh, series of horror films at Universal. Uh, but also his most infamous, of course, is Freaks, which which you mentioned, which came out the, the following year. Um, uh, and uh, the influence of both, even if he had just directed those, just those two films, uh, he would be an important director, certainly in the horror genre. Uh, and the influence, the, the ripples of those two films continues to um, keep moving forward all the way to today. And you can find the DNA of freaks in all kinds of different uh, transgressive horror films, I suppose you could say. Um, if, if not in the particulars, in, in the entire vibe or feeling of the film, I mean, the kind of uh, feeling that people got watching freaks is probably not dissimilar to the uncomfortable feeling that people received watching, uh, you know, Hereditary for the first time or, or Midsummer, um, and but then you can also go into the particulars of the subject matter of freaks, and you you see it reflected in all kinds of different films. Uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's uh, Santa Sangre and um, uh, Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog, um, uh, even in like the original run of Swamp Thing by Bernie Wrightson and uh, Len Wein, you get traces of of freaks in there. Um, even, um, but even, you know, leaving aside freaks and Dracula, uh, one of his least successful films in his life was uh, Miracles for Sale, which uh, I believe uh, didn't make back the money that the that MGM put into it. Uh, and it came out in 1939, this golden year of cinema and uh, is an often overlooked film. But uh, I find it uh, a fascinating film uh, and uh, it ties into a lot of Todd Browning's obsessions, uh, though does it in a more accessible way. Uh, it's sort of like the straight story for David Lynch, uh, uh, Miracles for Sales, like the straight story. It, uh, it's a fairly lighthearted uh, murder mystery, but there's also kind of dark stuff going on around the, the edges of it. And the whole notion of this a magician investigating paranormal phenomenon, but it, it turns out to actually be illusions. Uh, this goes, th that idea runs throughout Todd Browning's films. Uh, but uh, you you see that uh, only a few years later, uh, there was a very popular old time radio show called I Love a Mystery by Carl E. Morris. Uh, and it featured these uh, adventurers who would investigate uh, the paranormal and it would turn out to be fakery in the end. Uh, and uh, I was reading an interview with the people who created Scooby-Doo and they said their main inspiration for Scooby-Doo was I Love a Mystery. They wanted to do that in cartoon form. Uh, so the Todd Browning's influence maybe sometime is two or three degrees moved away from Todd Browning. So maybe there are people who have never actually seen a Todd Browning film but were influenced uh, by Todd Browning. Uh, and then so those three films we've already mentioned, Dracula, Freaks, and Miracles, Miracles for Sale are all sound films, but he made all these films in the silent era uh, as well. Uh, the most important ones in collaboration with Lon Chaney. And uh, you see in those films, they're not exactly horror films, um, 
they're more like Greek tragedies, um, but there are certainly horrific elements in them. And for the article that I contributed to the book, I picked out 12 uh, Browning films and I, I chose to focus on the ones that uh, would be of interest to horror film fans. They, they may not necessarily be horror films, but they're certainly about the fantastique. They're about the uncanny. Uh, they're the, the supernatural kind of hovers around the edges of the plots. Um, even if it turns out the supernatural is not exactly real in the context of the film. Uh, and there's always moments of horror in it, even in something like uh, Where East is East, which is the final collaboration between Todd Browning and Lon Chaney. It's essentially a realistic melodrama, but certainly there's moments of horror, particularly at the end and the way that that film uh, concludes. Uh, so there's probably other films I could have brought into it as well. The Blackbird, which is also a collaboration with Lon Chaney, but I decided to leave out some of the more realistic ones and just focus on those. And I think that a lot of horror film fans maybe have avoided, avoided them for whatever reason, or there's been a lot of sort of brick brats thrown at Todd Browning as being an ineffective director based entirely just on Dracula. Um, but the fact is, if you go back and look at the films he did with Lon Chaney, particularly West of Zanzibar and The Unknown, uh, those are masterpieces. So even if you leave aside Dracula and Freaks, he has masterpieces aside from, from those two films. And certainly West of Zanzibar and The Unknown are, are near the top. And you see uh, the influence of that, of those, of those two films later in uh, Ray Bradbury's work. Uh, Ray Bradbury said that Something Wicked This Way Comes through, grew directly out of his love of West of Zanzibar and the unknown. And it's kind of symbolic that uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes was published in 1962, which I believe was the year Todd Browning died. Uh, it's interesting how like the spirit of Todd Browning moving on to, to another living vessel in a way. Uh, but I could go on and on. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it over to Gary now to answer that question. Well, I, I'm happy to forge ahead. I I agree completely with Robert. I think that there's been this history of people uh, after his career ended, really starting in the 1950s with a couple of critics, uh, George Geltzer and and William K. Everson who started uh, writing that, you know, maybe his films, particularly seizing on Dracula, maybe they weren't uh, that good. And I think that reputation kind of continued through certain horror film magazines and books and some people who have written about him, including even uh, the, the main biography of Browning, I think was written by somebody who really doesn't seem to even like his films which is interesting. So I think there's this reputation now over 50 years that's very different than the reputation he enjoyed during his career when he was actually making films. And when I know once in the 1920s, he was referred to as the Edgar Allan Poe of cinema. And I think for the period of the uh, kind of the golden Hollywood, the silence of the 20s, the 30s, uh, it's hard to think of many other directors. There would be a few, you know, Stroheim, perhaps uh, Sternberg. There'd be a small number, but people whose 
artistic vision, the way we now talk about directors as being auteurs who, despite so many other people working on their films, despite maybe the films even having been written by other people, although Browning, we should say, did play a role in the writing of a lot of his scripts. But nevertheless, it's hard to think of many other directors. There'd be a few, but many others who had such a strong personal vision that comes to the fore time and again after so many films uh, during the 1920s and 30s. Uh, he, so so it's, it's regrettable that his reputation, uh, so strong in most of his lifetime, kind of really diminished thereafter. And I, and I think what's wonderful is uh, it's, uh, his reputation is starting to be recovered uh, somewhat. Uh, there's certainly always been a number of filmmakers and writers like Robert mentioned you know, I think some of us look at David Lynch and we do see a kind of a modern Todd Browning. There's a, you know, there's, I think a lot of creative people have not had this um, kind of down with Browning sentiment in recent decades, but critics have. I think that's- yeah, I was going to say real quick, you kind of see it a little bit when, um, you know, I've seen people talk about uh, Universal Studios uh, Dracula. And, you know, I, I always hear a lot of people kind of poo-poo the Todd Browning movie and say, oh, the, the Spanish one is is better. And I'm not saying the Spanish one is bad at all, but I think people short thrift um, John, uh, Todd Browning at, at times. Yes. Yes, I think so. And, and and I think, you know, the the Spanish language Dracula is an interesting case in point, because after many years of being a bit um, you know, bashed. I mean, there were actually a few writers who wrote on Universal Horror Films who proudly, they said, called themselves Browning bashers. But after a long period of time where Browning was not as well considered, the arrival, the rediscovery in, in, in a mainstream way, the rediscovery of the Spanish language Dracula uh, at the dawn of the 90s, there had actually been a uh, a, a partially complete print kicking around and being shown since the 70s, but most people didn't know about that. The When the print showed up, I think it was another opportunity for people to say, you know, here's a, a, a director whose, you know, reputation is in tatters in a lot of places, and now there's this shadow version of his best-known film, and it became a further way to... Uh, you know, to give him a few lumps. And I think we rightly were all excited to see the Spanish language Dracula because it had footage we hadn't seen. At times we were seeing parts of familiar sets, but aspects of them that we hadn't seen as clearly or, or you know, different camera angles and stuff. So, so to ha have a new universal horror film arrive basically in the 1990s, but one from the 30s, that was rather a staggering rediscovery. I think it became used as a as a another kind of battering ram though on on Browning's reputation. And I think a lot of people uh, you know embraced the film, but uh, maybe it maybe overly so. I, I think there were two people at the time when the film, the Spanish language was rediscovered. The, there were only two I knew of that had much of a of a level head. and one of them was Tom Weaver, who we've already mentioned. In his review of it, he wrote that, you know, this is great. It's so new, but uh, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, this is so cool. It's so new, but, but does, is it really better than the Browning version or does it just seem that way because it's something new for those of us that have watched all of the other universal horror films dozens of times? There was a critic uh, for Variety who also said, you know, this is 
in essence, the review said, this is fascinating, but, you know, come, come on, this is, you know, a bunch of poor performances, a lot of really bad composition visually. And, uh, uh, you know, it's more of a curio in essence. Um, but, but that film, yeah, that was like for somebody whose reputation was already not doing well, the arrival of the Spanish language became uh, uh, something close to a knockout punch in the 90s, I think. Uh, there's an interesting footnote to all that. And uh, a few years ago, Universal was trying to kick off this uh, dark universe, which was going to be their kind of shared universe of, uh, of their, their monstrous uh, characters. And uh, they did a trailer for it, a Dark Universe trailer. And all the images from Dracula were the Spanish Dracula. They didn't use any of the, uh, any scenes from the, the Todd Browning Dracula, which I thought was an interesting uh, choice by whoever put that together. Of course, the whole thing fell apart when the Tom Cruise mummy came out and it, it didn't do well. So they abandoned those ideas. So uh, maybe if, if we could, and I think this would be a good question for you, Gary, um, what do we know about Todd Browning's early life and how does that early life influence his films? Because I know much has been made of how uh, Freaks was actually influenced by some of his early experiences in life. And I, I think a lot of the themes in Freaks actually get revisited or not revisited, but uh, he visited those themes even before he did Freaks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, the, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I think some of those earlier films are not as well known in part because uh, they were silent films and, and didn't get the kind of later TV airplay. But there's a number of his films where we do see this um, deep interest in, in the particular and, and in the general, I think, but this in, in the particular, this deep interest with his work in kind of carnival sideshows uh, and so forth, you know, that, that had been a part of his career uh, he, I mean, he had been involved in kind of vaudeville, but also carnival sideshows. And we see that come up a lot in his films. I think uh, the the rediscovery uh, some years ago and, a, may, uh, and the availability as a result of his film, The Show, uh, with John Gilbert is one where we see those obsessions, I think. And they almost seem like, if not obsessions, they, and it's easy to say that uh, about a filmmaker, you know, without really knowing what he was obsessed with, but it certainly seems like it was a, a regular reservoir of ideas for him because he had lived it. And so these return in his, in, in a number of his films, I think the other thing about it though, is he, he loves uh, clearly this idea of trickery of fakery that was so much a part of the sideshow experience, you know, the the kind of humbuggery that we associate with P.T. Barnum in the 19th century. It's really a longstanding, I think, part of uh, of American entertainment and for that matter, American horror, because the very kind of uh, Scooby-Doo type experience that Robert mentioned is one that we can find in some of the earliest American horror, horror type stories, you know, I mean, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, is there really a headless horseman or is it just Brom Bones playing a prank, you know, that we see this over and over again with Washington Irving, Charles Brockton Brown, uh, uh, Hawthorne and, and on and on. Um, and so I think Browning, what part of his love for the carnival experience, I think was his own biography, as you, as you rightly mentioned. But I think it also speaks to the more general issue that he loved 
the uh, the fakery, the trickery. This becomes part of the films like uh, Miracles for Sale that Roberts mentioned. But I think it's something we see even elsewhere in films like Mark of the Vampire that he he seemed to actually enjoy invoking the supernatural or magic, etc., only to then show us at the end, you know, what what we might call the supernatural explained, you know, which is basically, you know, the the end of every Scooby-Doo episode, at least in the old days where, uh, you know, the mask is taken off, even if at first we thought there was a ghost, you know, there's not really. So I think that aspect of the carnival experience with, you know, fakery tricks uh, and so forth, I think that's really uh, something we see throughout many of his films, including those that aren't even specifically about carnivals. What are some of the other films other than, say, Freaks that deal with trickery in, in like a very um, upfront way? Trickery and, and uh, I, I think he deals with a, a few movies that do deal with like deformities and whatnot in the same way that Freaks does, um, particularly The Unknown has some of those themes in them as well, right? Well, The West of Zanzibar combines both of those <laughs> into, into one single storyline. Uh, which is it's it's best when you can get them all together in in one movie. Uh, I, I mentioned in the article that he seemed uh, to me. I, I began when watching them all in a row. I began to see a major theme that that runs throughout them, which he seems to have an obsession with um, lies. But it's as if he has these two categories: there are positive lies and and negative lies, and and of course, fiction, storytelling, artwork. Uh, these are lies that tell the truth. Um, and then there's a different kind of trickery, which is harmful. Uh, and in a lot of the stories, including um, The Unholy Three, uh, West of Zanzibar, another example. The Mystic is another example of this. Once there's someone who is either a con man or uh, a master of illusions, a master of disguise, uh, who is using these techniques to either swindle people or for, for selfish reasons. Uh, but then uh, later on, they'll have to use those same uh, mind manipulation techniques to undo the damage that's been done uh, or to try to rectify the wrongs that they themselves were responsible for. And that happens in West of Zanzibar, the mystic, uh, the Unholy Three, where um, some sort of confidence game has, has gone wrong or, or the person who's perpetuating the, uh, the confidence game uh, suddenly realizes uh, how, how horrible all this is. And then, but they use, they use those same exact techniques to, to try to rectify it. So you see this, this exploration of, of harmful lies and, and lies that are actually helpful. Uh, and I think certainly he probably saw, he was a stage magician at one point, you know, stage magic, uh, sideshows, carnival shows as being kind of that, what, what Kervonnegut called the FOMA, uh, harmless untruths in Kervonnegut's early 60s novel, Cat's Cradle, he created uh, this word FOMA, uh, a harmless untruth. So I think Browning saw uh, the, the the carnivals and the and the stage magicians and and storytelling and art in general as being a, a a harmless untruth, as opposed to the trickery that was going on quite a bit at that time in the early 1900s of like mediums, 
um, ripping people off, stealing their money. Um, a, a lot of people aren't aware of like how uh, intense some of these mediums would get in their trickery. Uh, there was a case that actually happened long after Todd Browning died, where there were these mediums who were pulling a con game um, on these widows, and they would actually manipulate them into having sex with them, take them into another room, and they would claim that the person in the room was the ghost of their deceased husband, and they were also stealing money from them at the same time. So uh, you see Todd Browning, I think he felt maybe like Harry Houdini, uh, a um, um, a desire to kind of pull the curtain back and, and say, well, look, what, what you think you're seeing may not be what you're actually seeing. And this is how it's done. Um, and so you, you see that in Mark of the Vampire uh, and you see it in West of Zanzibar and a lot of, a lot of other films. I was going to say on the subject of mediums, he actually did a film where one of the, where a medium is one of the main characters, I think um, the 13th chair, which I think had Bela Lugosi in it uh, before they ever, collaborate on Dracula. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's actually a rather a favorite film of mine. I think it, it was one that was hard to view until, uh, well, there were some bootleg videos that went around in the eighties and then finally, um, it made a, a legitimate DVD release. It, it's an early talkie. I think, I think part of the reason sometimes Dracula is misunderstood is it's part of that talkie transition, you know, silent to sound towards the end of that transition. Uh, 13th Chair comes fairly earlier. It's 1929. And it has that same kind of trompe fakery that, that, that Roberts talked about in it. It does have a spiritualist. It does have a spiritualist played by Margaret Witcherly, who uh, plays a, uh, a spiritualist who uses her fakery to try and help catch a murderer. Uh, and also as part of that, to clear her own daughter's name as one of the suspects. And it came out of a very popular Broadway play of the 1910s. It had actually been made as a film in 1919, I think was the year before Browning made it a decade later. And it's very interesting. Bela Lugosi plays a, uh, you know, a, a detective in it, kind of a, a something of a good guy kind of character, in other words, instead of uh, a villain like Dracula. But it has a lot of the same trickery, and not just in that sense of the uh, spiritualist character who's a fraud herself, but also even, I think, in Browning's own uh, filmmaking style. I hate to be like a spoiler, but the, the, uh, the solution to the crime, uh, one of the major crimes is that a, that a character in the darkness of a room, when the lights are out, throws a knife upwards and it sticks in the ceiling. This is how they've gotten rid of the weapon, the murder weapon that otherwise would be on their person. And uh, there's this wonderful moving camera shot. And Browning actually did some really amazing things with moving camera, even though he's usually uh, lambasted for not doing such. But he has this great kind of moving camera shot. It pushes inward and downward. But at a given point, it, it, you can actually, and this would have been more true in a large theater with a large screen. If you're a careful viewer, you can glimpse the knife stuck in the ceiling long before the detective figures it out. And so it's like the trickery extends to having fun with the, you know, the cinematic style in addition to just the storylines of the films. And so I, I think uh, 13th Chair, like a lot of these that are little known, uh, really tremendous film. 
I, I, that moment in the 13th chair, by the way, is, is almost representative of his entire um, attitudes towards trickery and illusion. He's, he's, he's playing fair with you and he's showing you the solution. It's right there, but it's almost like the purloined letter that you mentioned Browning being a ground Poe of cinema at the time. In the purloined letter, you know, the entire solution, uh, the, the thing that the police are looking for is right out in the open. That's why they can't see it. And so he, he sort of employs that uh, right there in the film, because I'm sure that that scene goes right by, uh, probably went right by most people when they saw it the first time. Yeah. I just wanted to add real quick, I think it's interesting that he deals with the theme of, of trickery and deception, because, um, you know, in, in a way, filmmaking itself is, is a process of making illusions, right? And I think we see that in a lot of filmmakers today. Like, um, I've often argued that, Christopher Nolan's movies are very much meditations on, uh, you know, the art of filmmaking or, you know, making illusions. And I think we even see it with someone like, um, you know, Orson Welles. I think that was one of his obsessions. And we even have him make a, a sort of fake documentary called F is for Fake. So I think it's uh, an early example you have with Todd Browning of a filmmaker sort of meditating on trickery and deception because their job is sort of about creating illusions in and of itself. Filmmaking itself is about making illusions. Absolutely. So uh, one thing I wanted to get into before we get into Revolt of the Dead, and I also want to talk a little bit about Freaks. Um, can we talk about uh, Todd Browning in relation to, I've seen a lot of people say that uh, his cinematic works have a lot in common with the sort of grotesqueries of the uh, Grand Guignol, um, in France, which was a, a theatrical tradition of, of sort of um, stories about, you know, the grotesque and the um, uncomfortable. Uh, would you say that there's parallels between the two? Well, I, I'll jump in for just a minute and then Robert can, can add as well. I mean, the, the Guignol Theater, I think there are some maybe some similarities there. I think there are to early American horror in general. Uh, but but then there were also limitations because the guignol was so often about, you know, bloodletting on stage and a kind of a chambers of horror type uh, waxworks come to life, you know, with murder and so forth right in front of us. And and there are times and it may come as much out of, you know, uh, concerns about censorship or or norms of the period. There's times where we see Browning kind of do the opposite. You know, when Dracula gets staked, it happens off screen uh, in the 1931 film. Uh, outside of Renfield pricking his finger, we really don't see blood uh, in the 1931 Dracula. And so I, I think that in terms of exhibiting certain kinds of horrors, there, there may be a connection there to Guignol. And he would have certainly been aware of it. I mean, for that matter, uh, I mean, though it was uh, obviously associated rightly with France, I mean, there were efforts at Guignol in England and, and even in America in the 20s. I think Crichton Hill in the 20s or maybe early 30s was trying to, the actor Crichton Hill from The Cat and the Canary was even trying to get a Guignol theater going in America. But but I think that he was limited, and I think we can talk about this too with Revolt of the Dead. He 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 was, or in some films he didn't get to make, would have been limited with, uh, you know, what he was able to show at the time, and so we sometimes get him cutting away from certain types of violence, even if it was just to keep uh, censors and so forth happy. Although it does seem like he he was dealing with some pretty bold. Um, 
themes when it came to horror and, and the grotesque. I mean, uh, I think it was the unknown that dealt with like themes of mutilation and even sexual frustration, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, I think some of these are certainly much more muted than, than, than the, the sheer amount of blood truly that spilled stage blood in, in the guignol. So, so it's sometimes more muted, but perhaps Robert would like to speak to this too. Well, you know, it's interesting because of course, Grand Guignol, in order to, to create those bloody effects, used a lot of stage magic uh, techniques in order to do it. So certainly Todd Browning would have been interested in that aspect of it. Uh, though it seems of course, there's no way to know what Todd Browning would have done if not bound by the, you know, censorship of the time. Uh, perhaps, perhaps he wouldn't would have preferred not to do, you know, like Val Luton in the 1940s, and to to sort of cut away from it and suggest these things, which he does in in Dracula. You know, so one of the uh, major criticisms of Dracula is that it's um, too stage bound, and uh, you know, we don't see Lugosi turning into a bat or you know we don't see a thousand rats out on the lawn uh but but when you actually go back and watch it uh and i think if you're in the proper receptive frame of mind and you see the moment where renfield comes in and starts talking about the rats you know there were thousands of them and there were millions of them uh that whole scene is actually quite chilling uh due to dwight fry's performance uh and the words that uh browning gave him to speak and so that's actually quite um, disturbing, that scene. I find it very effective, far more effective than if there had been a, a grand, you know, um, it, you know if, if Browning had had access to CGI in 1932, I don't think he would have elected to show those thousands of rats. I think he would have done it exactly the same way he did do it uh, in the film, which is probably the more uh, effective uh, way. Uh, but also his, even in the unknown or freaks, which deals with, um grotesqueries they're usually of a darkly psychological nature uh and i have often wondered what was in the water in 1920s america that Can you give that, an example of what you mean by like the the psychological element in in uh in the unknown and certainly in, in west of zanzibar um which which was very popular west of zanzibar was an extremely popular film uh it Lon Chaney specialized in these characters who they're in the entire, you knew that when you went to go see a Lon Chaney film, you were going to be watching a guy's life spiral down to darkness. <laughs> and that, that was the appeal to it. You know, it's hard to, to think of a modern equivalent of an actor who is popular because you know that when you go to the movie to see it, you're going to get psychologically flayed for, you know, an hour and 10 minutes that, that I don't, can't think of a modern equivalent in 21st century um, cinema, uh, but in in West of Zanzibar, they're very much these these really dark Greek tragedies uh, of unrequited love, and of someone who's so obsessed with revenge, or or obsessed with obtaining love that they they mutilate themselves or they mutilate others, uh, uh, and and it always it always comes back you know, on, on the person who initiated this and usually in some sort of ironic, you know, Oedipus Rex kind of way. Uh, and um, I think all- real quick, I was going to say, I think some people would be surprised uh, that, you know, these themes are dealt with in um, these early films from the twenties and thirties. But, you know, if yeah. you really look at the history of cinema before the Hayes Code, 
I mean, uh, you know, watching movies like The Black Cat uh, with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff or Murders in the Rue Morgue, the, the first adaptation of it with Bela Lugosi, you would see th- uh, these filmmakers dealing with themes that were like pretty intense for the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, we mentioned uh, we mentioned uh, David Lynch. Uh, I think that the feeling you get when watching Mulholland Drive is somewhat similar to the feeling you would get if you watched, you know, a double feature West of Zanzibar and The Unknown, or at least as close as you're going to get in 1920s uh, cinema. And so I, that's what I mean when it's there's the horror is more psychological. It's more it's it's coming from the the uh, bent uh, obsessions of the of the character, often played by Lon Chaney, but sometimes not. You know, the the in in the show, um, Lon Chaney's not in that. Uh, so, so we see Todd Browning playing with these themes even in films where Lon Chaney was not the star. So uh, I want to get into Revolt of the Dead, but before we do that, uh, I think we need to talk a little bit about Freaks just because that is my favorite Todd Browning movie, to be honest. Uh, and it's a very interesting movie because it is a commercial, f- it was a, a commercially released film, right? So I, I think the uh, studio behind it wanted to make money off of it. Um, and in that way, it comes off as very exploitative to a lot of people because this is a movie that deals with, um, for people that don't know, it deals with uh, circus people um, with various deformities. And it's a very interesting movie because it's basically about these circus people getting revenge on, you know, the, the beautiful people at the circus who are uh, more, I guess, normal looking, right? Um, by uh, the standards of society. And it's really interesting to me because on the surface, I, you can argue it's exploitative uh, but at the same time, it's very subversive uh, because really the villains of the film are the beautiful people. And in a way, the title works as um, a double meaning. It's it's asking us, who are the real freaks? Uh, is it these these people that are exploiting uh, the circus people? Uh, because they, they seem like the moral freaks of the movie. And I think it's a very interesting film. And I, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the sort of subversive nature of it and uh, what it did to Browning's career, Robert? Uh, yeah, uh, the the it also again involves a, a con uh, because Hans is being conned uh, by his uh, fiance. Hans uh, is the little the little man. Yes, yeah. yes, uh, and it it's, was based on a short story, by the way, called Spurs. By uh, the name of the writer was what was it, Gary? T- Todd uh, Todd Robbins. Todd Robbins, right. Uh, and it's interesting that it, w- it was the actor who played Hans who brought the story to Todd Browning's attention, was it not? Uh, he, he saw he saw the uh, you know he was hustling and uh, he saw the uh, the opportunity for another role for him, uh, quite a large role, uh, and and uh, so happily he he brought the story to Browning's attention. And um, it, it if involved- I recall correctly, it's uh, Hans is the character that. He's the main character, and basically, this this beautiful woman that he falls in love with at the circus is trying to um, marry him and then murder him to, you know, swindle him out of his money to steal his money. Yes, yes. And then when this when this becomes clear, uh, you know, that she uh, and her and her lover, the strong man, uh, meet their uh, ignoble end. And I know- I've often said it's one of the most cathartic endings I've seen in a movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's well also the ending uh which is quite horrific uh and, and some people have said that that it casts the freaks quote unquote in in a uh unfavorable light uh however uh i i would agree with you that in fact, it's it's the strong man and, and his lover who are actually seen in a horrific light. Uh, but also that the, that conclusion to Freaks um, shows something that uh, uh, is often um, a brick brat that's often thrown at Todd Browning is that he never made the transition from silent to sound cinema, uh, that that his use of sound was awkward or inadequate in some way. And yet, a freaks is the perfect marriage of of image and sound, and certainly that final sequence in the in the darkness and in the mud and in the rain, as the uh, the quote freaks unquote are are uh, they're trying to board the train to get to uh, the the beautiful young woman and and the strong man. Yeah. Yes, uh, that that scene uh, perfectly merges uh sound and image so i i think and so when people say he never made the transition he obviously did make the transition and you can see it on full display uh in freaks i i was gonna ask gary do you think uh am i off base is robert off base with seeing i i guess to me the circus people in it the so-called freaks uh you know, I, I actually sympathize with them a lot in that movie. Oh, I, th I think most of us do that watch the film. Do you think that was the intent on Browning's part? Well, I, 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 I very definitely think that that's the message of the film and that the villains are, uh, you know, the strong man and the beautiful woman that marries him for his money. Uh, I think, uh, you know, and it's a fascinating film because, you know, it's um, it's something that raised so many eyebrows when it came out. Uh, but it was not as reviled as as some historians said years ago, and I'm happy to explain that, but I would want to stop just for a moment and and mention on the heels of Robert talking about Browning's use of sound. I really think the problem is not with Browning's films. Uh, some are better than others. Some have scenes that are more interesting than others, etc. But I think the real problem is in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, there were five or six writers who wrote these things, which a lot of us would consider nonsense now, like Browning didn't know how to work with sound, which I think we see him doing even from his first sound film extremely well, The 13th Chair, which there are scenes that are just built around sound and sound effects interestingly and 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 dialogue used sometimes very interestingly sometimes sparingly i think the real problem is that film studies particularly popular film studies meaning like just you know everyday journalists or or fans who write about it and especially in horror i think that five or six people wrote these things about browning and for years thereafter, people just kept recycling those same ideas, including people that hadn't always even seen some of these films because they were inaccessible. And so I think it's the the great film horror film example of like the, uh, you know, the bad rumor that circulates around somebody around a small town that's not true. It just gets repeated, though, endlessly uh, because we see Browning using moving camera and sound and and uh, dialogue and music and everything so extremely fascinatingly that some of these uh, comments people make about his work defy 
uh, logic. And, and I think some of that is even true when it comes to the histories of the films. Yes, uh, Freaks was uh, disturbing for a lot of viewers when it was released. Yes, it was pulled from a lot of theaters in urban areas. But I mean, I've actually written extensively about the release of Freaks, and there were actually parts of America where it did quite well, uh, particularly some smaller towns and rural areas. You know, we say sometimes a film does well or is liked or that it's hated or does poorly. And the actual fact, especially in the period we're describing, where films didn't have wide releases the same weekend and so forth back then, you know, that made their way slowly around the country. Uh, you know, some people liked the film, some people hated it, some people were disturbed, some people were disturbed in ways they found interesting rather than uh, to, you know, hold the film in, in disdain. So what do you mean by that? Uh, what 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 reactions uh, that you would say are unexpected that they had? Well, it, it unexpected it, by comparison, certainly to the histories that have been told of the film in years past. It's not unexpected, I think, in terms of 1932 movies. If you go in and look at any 1932 film, you will find that some cities, the box office gross, and we can find these things rather, rather easily. And I'm not talking about overall grosses. I'm talking about individual theaters. We can go back into the city newspapers. We can go back to the trade publications, and we can find that maybe a film does much better in Kansas City than St. Louis, that it works much better in Chicago than Dallas, and that, that sometimes these things are at dramatic variance with one another. They finally add up to a total gross that the film makes, which frankly are sometimes hard to uh, trust anyway, because you know what's charged against a film from everyday running of the studio cost, or is it just the cost of the film proper? But uh, at the end of the day, what I'm suggesting is I think what we find with Freaks release is not that dramatically different than a lot of films of the period. Uh, some places it did well, meaning financially, uh, meaning the number of people that went to see it. Some places it did poorly. This was true of films like White Zombie that came out only a few months later, the 1932 Lugosi zombie movie. So, yes, if people were shocked and reviled at, at Freaks, some people in some major metropolitan areas. Uh, but that was, that doesn't constitute an overarching reaction from everybody in America. It was much more variegated than, 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 than monolithic, in other words. I, I have a question for Gary. Uh, I, I understand that Irving Thalberg was, was Browning's champion at MGM, and Louis B. Mayer did not like Browning, supposedly. That's, that's what I've read. Uh, it, it, so then Thalberg dies you know, in, in the late 30s, and then Browning's not directing any films anymore at MGM. Do you think that Thalberg's death had a huge impact on Browning retiring? I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I actually tend to believe that. And I tend to believe their association, you know, went back before Thalberg got to MGM because Thalberg was earlier at Universal, just like uh, Browning for part of the 20s. Uh, so I think that their relationship was longstanding. In other words, even before, uh, say, Browning goes back to MGM in 32 after making uh, uh, Dracula for Universal, you know, obviously Freaks and Fast Workers and Mark of the Vampire, the successive films after Dracula were MGM. They had worked together before that time, though, including it. Uh, you know, they've both been affiliated with Universal as well. So I think it was a longstanding uh, relationship, very much so. I think there's probably other factors too, though, because we see 
the horror film, the ban on the horror film come in and in really early, early 36, even though some things in productions keep coming out. So I think it's not totally surprising to me. We don't see a Browning horror film in 36, seven, eight, because there were so few at any studio. So I think there may be a confluence of, of problems that, you know, obstacles, whatever you want to call them, that, that uh, why we don't see a few films in that period, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if Thalberg's death, not one of them. It's interesting to think that because of Thalberg, we get um, Freaks, Mark of the Vampire, and also A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races. Uh, so we, we would not have those films. And when Thalberg died, you know, the Marx Brothers too uh, um, were affected by that. Which uh, is and their film's good. never as good after, of course. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, I was going to, well, go on, Robert. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say that uh, it's interesting that we were talking earlier about the Grand Guignol and, you know, to what extent um, Browning would have used violence if he could have. And it just occurred to me that in in the uh, Revolt of the Dead screenplay that is in there, there's actually a calls for actually quite a lot of blood, mm. uh, uh, you know, and and I wonder to what extent um, the, the the script that's in there is dated October 26, 1932. Mm-hmm. I believe. So I'm wondering to what extent was Freaks a factor in Roll of the Dead not being made? Uh, if, if we assume that, you know, the horror band came about partly because of Freaks and Black Hat and et cetera. Yeah, I, I think that's a fascinating question. Uh, my sense is that, that, that that's, I, I would look at things maybe a bit differently. You know, Freaks has this backlash in some parts of America, not all, like we said, some parts in 32. And then months later, MGM is announcing that Browning will make Revolt of the Dead. To me, in other words, this is another reason that they had a, a, uh, a not overly simplistic view of Freak's release, because otherwise, why would have they paid him to be involved in a film? Granted, it didn't get made, but if they were wanting nothing to do with Browning, they wouldn't have been paying him to work on Revolt of the Dead later in 1932 after Freak's release. But I don't think it was Freak's uh, that that caused Revolt not to get uh, made. It looks like he ends up, he, he's, he's got a couple of other projects that don't get made around the same time. Certainly forgetting Freak's, I think Revolt of the Dead, had it been made, it would have been the most controversial uh, horror film of the 30s. Maybe next to Black Cat, but certainly Black Cat, you know, uh, was muted beyond what what was originally envisioned for the film i think um you know he was working on two or three things he ends up on fast workers to me revolt of the dead really suggests that they hadn't written him off entirely as a horror filmmaker even after freak's release do do you think that the uh the sort of over the top elements the 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 uber horrific elements of the script the bloody uh parts do you think those were included um do you think that Todd Browning thought he would actually be able to materialize this stuff on the screen? Or is it like uh, Alfred Hitchcock adding in scenes and psychos specifically to remove them? Yeah, I think probably the latter, Robert. You know, I mean, if you look at the script, if you read the script, I know you have. And I think it's just uh, it's staggering in a lot of ways. I mean, some of the the the, the we're talking about Revolt of the Dead here. We're talking the, the about Revolt okay. of the Dead, and I think the kind of, of demonic possession that he describes in it, for example, wouldn't appear on American screens until Friedkin's 
exorcist in the 70s. He's talking about stigmata. He's talking about literally crucifying somebody in the film to save them from demonic possession. He's talking about taking over other bodies. He's talking about the entire dead of the earth coming back to life. This is years before Romero, too. This is years before Romero. Dawn of the Dead. Dead. This is there's a bit of that that's in it. There's certainly a bit of the kind of uh, exorcist type films in it. There's um, there's a lot of crazy stuff in the film. In fact, there's even long before Jaws and Steven Spielberg, there's even a a large number of man-eating sharks that follow a ship to London through the Atlantic into the Thames River uh, because there's uh, the, the the sharks realize there's dead people reanimated, I guess, by scent. He's not as p- specific as to why they know, but they know they're chasing after dead people on a boat. So you've got all kinds of things that we wouldn't see until uh, really more like the 1970s. Yeah. So I, you- I think, Robert, before we, um, yeah. I, I, I just, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves in the sense of, I want my listeners to know uh, this Revolt of the Dead movie that wasn't made, this unused script for a Browning movie. Uh, for listeners that are unfamiliar, what was Revolt of the Dead? What, what's like the basic plot outline, Gary? Well, it, it, there, there were permutations of it. Uh, I guess the quickest bit of background history is that the script and the various drafts emerged when Browning's uh, personal materials were finally auctioned in recent years. And that's how I obtained these materials, all of his handwritten notes, the typed pages, everything. Basically, we have somebody who's going to uh, a a third world type country, becoming involved, uh, studying natives, uh, becomes familiar with a witch doctor. And the witch doctor, among other things, in one iteration, sacrifices a young girl in a very bloody way. I think that's one of the elements maybe Robert was thinking of when he talked about it being very bloody. Um, And that the same witch doctor is able to basically something along the lines of astrally project into another person's uh, body, a dead corpse. Uh, And so it's kind of there's a kind of a zombie element there, but 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 even kind of beyond zombies. I mean, I think Browning was quite aware of the cinema and these kinds of subjects. He would have known. Well, probably- it was in the air at the time, right? Because there was the, the, air, the William yeah. Seabrook uh, novel, uh, Magic Island had come out. And yeah. basically there was a lot of fears about zombies. And I, I think it was driven by a certain level of xenophobia um, yeah, uh, yeah, about yeah. Haiti. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely, including American military involvement in Haiti uh, in in the immediate years prior. Magic Island, of course, in essence, becomes the film White Zombie, which is released at the end of July 32. And right after Browning's working on this story, Revolt of the Dead, to me, it seems like he was trying to out-zombie zombies uh, by having even this kind of uh, demonic-type possession take hold of the corpses rather than just being, say, a mindless zombie or somebody who had been uh, subjected to some potion or powder or, you know, uh, like like we sometimes think of uh, anthropologically with zombies. Uh, It seems like he was trying to outdo a lot of people in a lot of ways here, including things people hadn't even so much tried outside of maybe the likes of uh, 
you know, uh, Benjamin Christensen or, you know, very few filmmakers before him. It's wild that he wanted to do, uh, you know, exorcisms uh, way before Friedkin did it with uh, The Exorcist. I'm I'm curious. So uh, would Revolt of the Dead have been, I think, I know a lot of people that watch White Zombie today. I I was just on another uh, podcast called Movie Night Extravaganza and they were younger. So I think White Zombie made them very uncomfortable, especially because of the the sort of racial elements. Would Revolt of the Dead have been, uh, would it would it also have been maybe uh, a little bit um, non-politically correct? Yes, yes, that would have been very much the case. Uh, in fact, frankly, more so than White Zombie. Certainly, uh, having written a book about White Zombie, I know uh, and and have written about the the kind of intrinsic racism in the film. That that said, you know, most of the zombies that are at uh, Lugosi's um, uh, estate working in the plantations are not necessarily African of African and white zombie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the, the, the racial and racist elements are there, but not as pronouncedly as they would have been in revolt of the dead, I think, because there's, you know, maybe degrees of, uh, of, of how, how horrible, uh, uh, politically incorrect racist some things are. I think revolt of the dead would have been more, uh, much more so than, than, than white zombie. You know, it's interesting about the script is that there are those overarching uh, racist imagery throughout the script. Then you also get weird moments like uh, there's this one moment where Boris says to the witch doctor something like, how did white civilization manage to to drive you back? Uh, Something like that. And then the witch doctor replies, cannon, worships, airplanes, whiskey and greed. You know, so uh, so he's also part, sort of taking shots at the white yeah. people. Too. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see both things going on. It's very, uh, you know, bipolar in that sense, uh, mm. paradoxical. Uh, that that you, you they seem to be aware of the theme at the at the same time. So I don't know if we can go a little bit over the hour because I wanted to dig into this a little bit more. Do both of you have time or sure, sure. Okay. Uh, so how how did this uh, script uh, get? taken out from the obscurity that that it was in for many years well that's yeah that's a great question it really it really results basically from from the sale of browning's own materials which generated uh you know several hundred thousand dollars total mostly from his collection of original still photographs and those were a lot of the high-priced items there were actually even two auctions of browning's materials uh, that had been inherited by um, uh, other persons outside of his family. He didn't have children, uh, so uh, so it, it was uh, it was thankfully being able to obtain them. You know, when things get auctioned, this is an interesting thing, I, I suppose, about all historical artifacts. Particularly, I think it's true of film because there's such popular interest in film, owning artifacts, props, etc. These are big businesses, movie posters selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars, so forth. Um, and then they sometimes will go into collectors closets or safes or whatever, and nobody ever, you know, sees them again. Right. Um, and, uh, so I was fortunate that I was able to bid on and win, uh, all of Browning's materials for, um, revolt of the dead because, you know, and, and then scripts from the crypt became the perfect home to, uh, reproduce the entirety of the script. I mean, a big part, there's a, it's a book with a lot of wonderful, I hope, I believe, great chapters like Robert Guffey's. 
it also includes the entirety of the uh, Revolt of the Dead script. So you you don't have to just hear, you know, me synopsizing it. You can actually read the entire script as well as some of his notes and everything. So it was thankfully it didn't go into the black hole of a wealthy collector's closet or whatever. We were able to obtain it and then get it out there for people to know because it had been uh, otherwise a generally unknown project of his. What was your reaction when you guys first read uh, The Revolt of the Dead? I guess it was a working treatment, right? Well, it's it's it, uh, that you know what that actually prompts a question I, I have for Gary, actually, and that is the format of the script uh, seems unusual to me in the sense that it's a it almost reads like um, it's third person past tense prose as mm. opposed to being in a script format, yet it's very long. Yeah. Uh, is that is that unusual for the time period or is that is that the kind of format that other scripts uh, uh, can be seen? Yeah, I I that's a great question. As regards 1932, I, I would have a hard time answering that because if I had to, I would say it would be unusual in 32. Let me clarify. It's certainly unusual in terms of other 1932, 31, 32 scripts I have personally read, including some of uh, them that are out there for, for Browning. You know, you look at the, um, his scripts that exist for 13th chair for Dracula for uh, freaks, they aren't in this style, you know. Where I see this style more is is some silent film scripts are written more this way because, of course, they had such a dearth of dialogue. And uh, like I I've recently been reading the script, we, we'll be publishing uh, the script for Durjanis Cop for the uh, lost F.W. Murnau film from 1920, his unauthorized adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde made two years before his unauthorized version of Dracula with Nosferatu. And it's written something more like in this style, you know, more, more prose than, um, than typical screenplay format. So why Browning did that, I, I don't know. What we do know is that the, the draft pages that aren't directly from the October 26th draft are the same style. So I don't know why they were written in this way. And he wasn't the only person working on it. He clearly had some clerical person helping him retyping, but he also had a couple of other, there were a couple of other writers involved. So who decided let's write it in this style, which is almost more kind of novelistic, you know, I don't know. You know, it almost reminds me of, uh, if you've ever read Ray Bradbury's uh, quote treatment, but was which is actually a full-length screenplay where it came from outer space uh, you know apparently Bradbury was not when Universal asked him to write the film he wasn't yet familiar with the formatting so he just wrote the screenplay almost like a prose you know he called it an outline but it was like 100 pages long you know and then so yeah. they, they had to get someone yeah. else to to put it in screenplay format basically yeah yeah well and I wonder I wonder with Browning too as as part of that style I mean some of the things he's writing would never be noticeable on screen uh particularly when he talks about there's an odor he describes right you know uh, like uh I forget what of a dead person or something you know or some some decayant type scent and uh so I wonder if I mean my, my this is totally guesswork but I mean if you're he knew he couldn't express a scent on screen unless somebody said oh that smells like the grave in dialogue but you could but so so I almost wonder sometimes if if some of this was about him getting his own 
mind in a place with the mood and the atmosphere and including in things that he would have known wouldn't have translated necessarily to the screen, but that would have just helped him get in the, the, the zone, you know, so to speak. But but that's that's guesswork. Right. Right. Yeah. So he's including things in there to to uh, suggest atmosphere as opposed yeah, to for his for his own head and for his, you know, just this is the style or this is the 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 kind of mise en scene. But beyond that, just this is the feel, you know, this is the feel I'm after. And I'm writing it up that way, even though I, I know as he had to have, you know, a scent on screen doesn't translate. Do, do you think uh, Lugosi would have been cast in the film? I, I think there is there is a character that's Hungarian, right? So I, I had thought that too, maybe that the Hungarian character would have been Lugosi's. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very possible. It, it you know, depending upon again the kind of the iteration you're reading, sometimes the person's too young for Lugosi, basically at the time. Uh, so, but it's 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 very possible, you know, uh, it's very possible. I mean, um, he must have enjoyed working with Lugosi because what we do know is that his last film. The one that Robert uh, talked about that I'm so glad he did. I love Miracles for Sale. Um, we know on the script drafts for it, which exist, he wanted Lugosi to be in it. So it, it's very possible Lugosi would have been in the film or that he would have wanted Lugosi in the film. Yeah, I, when, uh, I was thinking the Boris character, who I guess is uh, an occultist. And I think he's described as Hungarian in yeah, uh, the script, yeah. probably would have yeah. fit Lugosi well. But that that actually leads me into another aspect of uh, Revolt of the Dead, and that's potential parallels that it would have had uh, with the story of Dracula. I think there's even a, a sort of um, Van Helsing-like character, uh, Dr. Von Heckelmetz, uh, and, and this whole idea of, you know, this supernatural force coming over London, and uh, it, it sounds like there's a lot of parallels to Dracula in Revolt of the Dead. I certainly believe that, yeah, and I think, I think we also see it, you know, uh, in uh, Carl Freund's film, uh, The Mummy, uh, something that's been remarked about ever since the mummy was released. Literally, I remember, I think it was Wood Soans, the critic writing in the Oakland Tribune back in the very week that mummy was released in his review said, you know, this seems a lot like Dracula. And uh, I think Revolt of the Dead has that same kind of a connection, uh, you know, where where there's various elements that seem quite, uh, quite like Dracula, not the least of which is, is, you know, this would have been, um, another supernatural film without the uh, supernatural explained away rationalized like the end of a scooby-doo episode i mean both films dracula and revolt of the dead had it been made would have been really the supernatural unleashed never explained truly at play so i think there's a lot of similarities there robert uh, may may well like to talk about that too yeah it's interesting it's also uh mark of the vampires often thought of as a remake of London After Midnight, and of course it is, but it also incorporates elements of Dracula. Uh, so it's really a merging of London After Midnight and, and Dracula. Um, but uh, yeah, it's fascinating how the film looks to the past in one way, in, in terms of plucking elements of Dracula, but also what's most startling about it is how it looks towards the future, um, sometimes 20, sometimes like 40 years into the future, there's this one part where um, uh, there's a passage where it says, soon all London was throbbing with terror at the presence of these living dead. The newspapers cried out more news of the shocking tragedy in each new edition. 
the horror of these lifeless beings who were walking when the living had aroused the city and the nation. It, now, of course, obviously you think of Night of the Living Dead, but even earlier, like a creature with the atom brain, I, I mean, that description could apply to creature with the atom brain uh, or uh, Invisible Invaders, the, the John Agar movie, which was cited by George Romero as being an inspiration for Night of the Living Dead. Uh, but also, as you say, the exorcist and even the, the crucifixion scene re reminded it, it brought to mind, uh, you know, Piper Laurie being crucified by the knives at the end of Carrie. You know? <laughs> so it, it, there's elements that are definitely, you know, 20, 40 years in advance of where horror was going to go. Yeah, it sounds like there was, you know, some really shocking elements to this script. Uh, it sounds like there's almost like a precursor to the apocalyptic zombie trope. And like you said, I mean, there's crucifixions in it, demonic possession. I mean, this is unheard of at the time. And, and, and stigmata, you know, uh, the, the appearance of wounds uh, on, a, on a person related to, you know, on their body, anatomically related to the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ. I think that the, the other line that, that I remember, and this one, I suppose we could think of a film where later film where this comes up, but there's this great line where it, he, he says basically, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, from memory, but he basically says it was getting to where people were scared to go out for fear that they'd come home and, you know, the dead Aunt Sophronia or whomever would be sitting there to greet them. I, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, that with everybody coming back from the dead, you'd be confronted with your own dead, uh, you know, relatives. Um, so there is a very apocalyptic sense to all this. Yeah. 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 Wow. Oh, yeah. The world would be basically... Uh, the dead, you know, taking it over and and to get rid of the living. And uh, so even in some of those ways, yeah, it's very much like uh, even some elements we could look at, uh, you know, Army of the Dead or something, you know, very recent and see little threads of this or that that certainly don't come directly from Revolt of the Dead because nobody's really read it until very recently with the publication of our uh, of, of our book. But, but nevertheless, it seems very prescient, very similar to what comes later, even though, of course, Romero and Friedkin and so forth would have been completely unaware of revolt. It, it's still a fascinating, I think, antecedent to them. Uh, before we start closing out, is there anything else you would say about Revolt of the Dead? Uh, because I, I think we've sort of teased people with it in a way, because now they're going to be like, I have to read this. It sounds really wild. Uh, are there any elements that would stand out? Uh, to people that pick up the book, like what what elements did you find most interesting in the grand scheme of things? Do you want to go, Robert or Gary? Yeah, well, yeah you know, uh, leaving us obviously the script itself is amazing, but I was I enjoyed reading other parts of the book that that I myself did not write. Gary wrote a whole chapter about Mark of the Vampire that I found fascinating. Mark of the Vampire. When when I when I first saw Mark of the Vampire, I was disappointed in it, just like everyone else, because when you get to the end, it's like, oh wait, what? These are just actors playing vampires. Uh, uh, it has since become one of my favorite films. I, I, I've seen it many times. I, I love the atmosphere of it. Gary's pointed out that it has the most atmospheric cemetery uh, in golden age horror cinema. And, and, and I see, when I look at the EC comics of the 50s and the way Graham Ingalls drew cemeteries, I think of Mark of the Vampire. You know, I, I wonder how much these cinematic images stuck in the minds of the kids who would later go on to draw Tales from the Crypt and stuff like this. But um, the, in, in Gary's chapter on Mark of the Vampire, uh, you um, talk about the changes from script, the evolution of the script to film. Uh, and I thought it was fascinating that you, you mentioned 
there, there's been a rumor for years that Count Mora, Lugosi's character, and Luna, uh, his vampire daughter, were supposedly in an earlier iteration of the script involved in some sort of incestuous relationship, which then led to Count Mora blowing his brains out with a gun. And indeed, you do see a bullet hole in the side of his head, uh, which is a wonderful touch in the film. Uh, but you, you, Gary, read all the iterations of the script, and, and this element is not in it. So I was just wondering, uh, where does that come from? Does that first appear in William Everson? Does it appear in David Skull? Like, who, who first said the, the, the rumor about the incestuous affair? Well, it certainly dates back to at least the 70s. Uh, I'd, I'd want to look and see uh, some of the 60s books before I say for sure, but it certainly dates back before Skull. Um, you know, it's not impossible that it's true to the extent that Browning himself, again, kind of getting a feel for the film, maybe even in his discussions with Lugosi and Carol Borland, uh, said, you know, well, my my belief is that this is the, the characters, you know, were involved in an incestuous affair and then the father shot himself suicide in the head. Uh, but so, so it may be something that they talked about, like as a kind of a backstory for themselves privately. But but no, it doesn't turn up in any version of the script whatsoever, uh, you know. And so uh, I think, it, you know, there's so many of these myths in in horror film not so much horror film history, but I guess what we would call horror film historiography, you know, the people writing the histories and, and, and these rumors from the 50s, 60s, 70s get reproduced, repeated, reprinted. And then they become almost at a given point unshakable fact. You know, I think this is goes back to what we said about Browning in general, that, that you know, some of these things like, oh, he wasn't good with sound. He wasn't good with, uh, with camera movement, yada, yada. And of course it's all, you know, uh, to my mind, just mostly nonsense that's been repeated. I guess my big hope for the book would be that people not only love Revolt of the Dead, but they'll uh, want to re-engage with his films or maybe engage with them the first time and not think about the nonsense that's on Wikipedia or uh, you know, some horror film book, but instead you know, watch them and see for themselves because I think this is where the likes of David Lynch and Yodorowsky and, and, and Ray Bradbury and your, yourself and myself, you know, love Browning's work. I think more people would if they gave it a chance. There's just two more things I want to touch on briefly here since we mentioned uh, Mark of the Vampire, uh, which I, I really need to see Mark of the Vampire. I have yet to see it. I need to uh, treat myself to that. But I know that a lot of people were very affected by, it. Um, uh, you know, there's... Um, Filmmakers like uh, Fred Olin Ray, who worked on a lot of low-budget films in the 70s and 80s, he actually went out of his way uh, to rediscover um, Carol Borland, who, who plays one of the main characters in that, Luna. Um, and I was interested, what do you think about uh, the way uh, Browning uh, treats women in his, um, in his stories? Like what, because she seems to be a character that made an impact on a lot of people that, that enjoyed the uh, old horror classic classic horror movies um her character luna so what can we say about women in uh this sort of todd browning universe well i i think that they're, they're certainly varied uh you know i mean we can see even i think a distinction between say mina in his version of dracula and and uh lucy who becomes uh you know the undead and who in the completed edited film dracula the browning film 
Uh, we never even know for sure if she's uh, staked, you know, destroyed. Certainly it's not uh, explicitly uh, alluded to. I think Carol Borland, a lot of us think about, uh, I knew Carol uh, fairly well for several years um, until her death from probably 1985 until the time of her death. A wonderful lady. I think she rightly, um, you know, uh, was happy with having been in, in Mark of the Vampire. I think the character in some ways is similar to some that Browning had created before, particularly uh, the quote bat girl in uh, that Edna Titchener played in London after midnight in 1927. Certainly the clothing, the attire is similar, even though Titchener didn't have long hair. Really though, I think, I think that the, 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 the Luna character is similar to even earlier uh, kind of vampiric, uh, uh, vampiric type women from, from, we could say Theta Barra, we could say the Philip Byrne Jones painting, The Vampire from 1897, or even literary descriptions of some female vampires in the 19th century, you know, this kind of pale face, dark hair, uh, dark eyebrows, uh, a funereal gown, you know, uh, that kind of uh, uh, a look. And of course, the wings that we get with uh, Borland make for one of the most striking images in, uh, I think, 1930s horror and and remind me of, among other many other things, maybe, but remind me of the Albert Payneau painting from 1890 uh, uh, of a bat-like woman, uh, you know, that's become such a, most people don't know Payneau uh, by name, but that image of his uh, from circa 1890 is, you know, I've been reprinted on T-shirts and all kinds of places. So, uh, you, you know, uh, regarding Browning's treatment of women in his films, I would point out uh, *The Unknown*, where a young jo Joan Crawford is the star, and and her character she cannot be touched by men. She doesn't want to be touched, uh, and that's why she uh, likes Lon Chaney's character because apparently he has no arms. Um, and uh, there's a scene where she says, uh, hands, men's hands, if only the world could take the hands from all of them. Um, and she's clearly like suffering from some sort of trauma and is a very sympathetic character. Um, and in fact, that passage uh, inspired me to write a short story that I just recently published called uh, The Pathology of the Hands. It's in an, an anthology called Extremely Bizarre. Uh, and I began the story with that quote uh, from Todd Browning's The Unknown. Uh, so his work is uh, still influencing people, including me, uh, today. But uh, The Unknown is certainly, um, you know, I mean, I hope that as a result of reading my chapter in the book that people will seek out some of these films that they've never seen before. Horror film fans or even just film fans in general will seek out The Unknown and West of Zanzibar and, and the show, which is even more, even more obscure than than the unknown because it doesn't have Joan Crawford in it or, or, or Lon Chaney of course but like particularly those three are uh, I think they'll be very surprised uh at how at the the in-depth psychology of these characters and how disturbing they are real quick too uh because I I wanted to talk a little bit about it in case people are unfamiliar with it but since we had mentioned Mark of the Vampire uh, that's often been talked about as sort of a a talky version of an earlier movie that Todd Browning did called London After Midnight. And for people that don't know, London After Midnight is essentially the holy grail of lost films. Uh, so maybe, uh, Gary, you could talk a little bit about London After Midnight and how uh, it's sort of become 
you know, legendary now. I remember uh, there's a Robert Block story. I think it's called The Legacy, which uh, was later adapted into um, an episode of the TV show Monsters that literally has the Lon Chaney character uh, from London After Midnight in it. And it, it seems like that really captured the imagination of a lot of people, this lost film, London After Midnight. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that film. Yeah, sure. It was a 1927 film. It was actually released, I think, basically on Christmas Day of 1927. And um, some of Cheney's most, Todd Browning directed uh, some of Cheney's most, I think, electric, uh, electrifying makeup, uh, you know, as a vampire with uh, wearing a kind of a top hat, a beaver hat, as they were called, uh, very jagged teeth, and not just two canines, but a whole row of jagged teeth ready to bite us. There was, as I mentioned, it's an iconic there, image. Uh, if people look up London after midnight, Cheney in that, they'll know, just, it. They'll, they'll know it, even if they don't know the title of the film. Uh, it had a real, it, it, it did quite well uh, at the time, a bit varied, as, as we were saying earlier, all films did. I've traced a lot of the different reactions in different cities and so forth, but uh, fascinating film. I think uh, people who saw it at the time, I spoke with several who did, including Robert Block, including uh, Ray Bradbury, including uh, Forey Ackerman and some others. And I think the, the, the thought that they had uh, that I got from them was was pretty much consistent that they thought it was not the best or worst of Browning Cheney's films, and they assumed people would be disappointed if it was uh, rediscovered because the film does end by exposing that iconic vampire you've described uh, as a fraud. You know, he's he's just a, a detective dressed up to try and catch a murderer. So it's back to that Scooby-Doo thing. Uh, I think uh, what's fascinating with that film, you know, is what happens uh, uh, later, you know, is, is uh, it's, it's destroyed. The last known copy was destroyed in a vault fire at MGM in 1965. Uh, sometimes people say 67, but it was 65. The, um, what's fascinating though is, you know, is just a few years earlier, there's a Basil Gogos painting of Cheney as that character on an issue of Famous Monsters on the cover. And, you know, in a period where silent films were, were largely forgotten, not cared about, et cetera, here across America is Cheney's face from that movie on a um, magazine on every newsstand practically. Um, and, and it continues to grow. I think the legend around it, maybe because we can't see it, you know, there's all kinds of, of uh, salutes, homages, appropriations, as you mentioned with Block. I mean, I think another one very clearly is the Babadook, uh, you know, at, at, in, in essence looks like, uh, to an extent, at least the Cheney uh, vampire. Uh, it's appeared as artwork in all kinds of places. I was listening to a Vern Langdon album LP the other day called uh, The Vampire at the Harpsichord, and there's artwork of Cheney as the vampire on it. So it, it keeps showing up. It doesn't go away, nor do all of the rumors that copies exist. Every uh, year, there's all every few years, every there's few always years. a rumor that starts. It's been found. It's I saw a wiki entry recently that claimed it was found in July and then nothing came of that. You, I think it's the Holy Grail. It really is. It's, it's the Holy Grail. And it's also uh, the fountain of, of so many ongoing rumors and pranks and hoaxes. There, there have been hoax fragments of the film allegedly found. One of them was nothing more than a than an action figure from the film, kind of a doll that was made by Sideshow Toys. 
and somebody had filmed it with a kind of very scratchy damage and everything and palmed it off on YouTube, tried to palm it off as actual footage from the film. The biggest story of all, which I don't believe will come true, but the biggest story of all is that the film, and this part actually is true, the film will go public domain on January 1st uh, in two and a half months. It will be public domain. MGM will no longer own it, where if a copy showed up today, MGM would own the copyright. They won't as of January 1st. The latest spate of rumors I hear, and this is the part I don't believe, is that some collector somewhere has been sitting on it quietly waiting for January 1st, you know, about 10 weeks from now. So they can emerge not only with it, but without fear of any copyright complaints or reprisals uh, because it'll be public domain. Do you think there's any possibility that we'll ever see London After Midnight Surface? Or, I mean, we sort of got uh, Turner Classic Movies, I believe a few years ago, uh, did something with it, uh, but it wasn't, it, it was almost like a reconstruction or recreation type deal. It was built entirely out of surviving photos with kind of zooms and pans and stuff added. It, it's not impossible. It will turn up. You know, there's a, uh, I, I, I'm always so happy to hear Robert talk about Browning and, and, and including uh, the unknown. And, you know, it's uh, uh, Port None, the silent film festival has uh, screened a, a longer version of the unknown that just turned up that nobody ever thought would turn up and it turned up and another obscure horror film from 1920 has turned up a film uh, that, that Marshall Nealon made called go and get it doesn't sound like a horror film but it basically was kind of an early horror type film so stuff continues to turn up um and so it's not impossible London after midnight will uh, some of the places things turn up or even things like places like archives around the world where these films have been sitting for decades, sometimes with the cans not well marked, uh, trafficked under other titles and other languages. It's not impossible, uh, but I think uh, I'm not going to hold my breath for it because ever since I was about 10 or 12 years old, I think I was 12 when Forey Ackerman first told me it's been found. And of course, once again, it hadn't been. So I'm not going to hold my breath, but it's not impossible. I think it's uh, the perfect subject for hoaxes because it's it seems so possible that it could be found based on past experiences with, I, I believe Michael Curtiz's The Mystery of the Wax Museum was a lost film at one time and then was rediscovered in the late 60s, I, I believe. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and also, of course, recently Metropolis. A yeah. long version of Metropolis was found and uh, Doctor Who fans have found uh, lost you know, episodes of Doctor Who that the BBC wiped uh, were found in other archives of other countries. So it's it's so tantalizing because it sounds very plausible is part of the reason so I, i'm not saying this is like I, I mean the fire was obviously just unexpected blah 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 but um it, it seems like uh it became lost in a time where i don't think people would have thought that we would have vhs and dvds and blu-rays back then uh was there an issue i guess with uh preserving films at that time was there a lot less care given to preserving films when it became lost in the fire Yes, would be the quick answer. Different studios had different uh, levels, I think, of respect for their old archives. Uh, but uh, the most that people generally envisioned in the 1960s would be television airplay. And that was not the case, of course, for most silent films, you know, so they could recycle talkies from the 30s, 40s, 50s onto 1960s TV. Uh, the potential was there, but but what, what 
dramatically less so with silent films. Uh, so I, you know, there there were people that realized by 1910, 1912, we should archive everything. This will all be of value. Um, and, and and some of them were journalists. Some of them were were museum uh, workers uh, like Iris Berry. But but in general, the studios didn't take as much care of their materials as they um, as they should have, or as we wish now they would have. I remember hearing. I think it was uh, Kim Newman saying, suggesting that possibly because it had been remade as Mark of the Vampire, that MGM didn't have a vested interest in maintaining or taking care of the original. And yet we have the Unholy Three, we have the original and we have the remake later. So uh, I don't know if that would have been a factor. I, 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 I tend to agree. In fact, I strongly agree with, with you and what you've just suggested about uh, Unholy Three. I think... Um, what uh, what Newman's referring to is not something that would be uh, borne out by uh, literally hundreds of other films where they were made more than once, you know, uh, like Edwin Carew making Resurrection as a silent and then as a, a talkie, he was shooting it at, at Universal at the same time as Dracula. I mean, multiple versions exist for so many films and and I don't see. I mean, I, he may get that idea out of the fact that 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 there was uh, uh, an extant memo that there was thought about doing that with the British version of Gaslight because of the American version uh, with Charles Boyer, of course, and and that maybe you know let's destroy the British version uh, to you know. But but I think in general, there's there's certainly no pattern of that we see in Hollywood film history whatsoever. And when it was the same studio making both, I, I find that kind of, uh, you know, frankly, uh, um, certainly not borne out by the facts would be the, you know. We have the 1920s Hunchback of Notre Dame and we have the 1939. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and the same with the Phantom uh, from, from 25 and 43, the Phantom of the Opera. You know, we, we can yeah, see- People forget about the 1943 Phantom of the Opera, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and we're talking horror here, but there would be so many more examples that could be given of stories, uh, uh, you know, uh, non-horror stories, non-horror films. Well, West of Zanzibar. West of Zanzibar and Congo, you know, I mean, th- this is true over and over again. And I, I think it's, uh, it, 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 it defies logic in, in my uh, book, frankly, that thought. By the way, you might be interested to know that I actually saw Congo first before I saw West of Zanzibar. And I actually liked it. I rather liked the, the remake. Congo, oh, I do too. I, they're, they're both they're both tremendous yeah. films and they're both not as well known among horror fans uh, as they should be um you know yeah i i have to ask too uh maybe you can clarify this because i've seen on the wikipedia entry which we can't always trust wikipedia right but um i've seen it on the wikipedia entry for london after midnight say that it's based on a short story called the hypnotist uh did todd browning write a short story before he made the movie or what do we know anything about that, or is that a hoax as well? No, no, it, it was based on a story. Uh, I don't believe the story was ever actually published. I mean, this is true of so many. I mean, now we would refer to these usually as treatments, right? You know, where there's a treatment first, and then there's a fully fledged script, and so forth. Uh, but and that was the original title, you know, of the film, the hypnotist. Is it possible that there's a a, a film canister lying around labeled the hypnotist? 
that is actually London after midnight. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I hesitate to say anything's impossible, but <laughs> uh, but 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 you know that was one story that a person told. Um, you know, I think in the past ten years, maybe a little less. That was a big internet rumor. Uh, the horror drunks website or one of those broke the story. I think it was the 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 drunks with it spelled with an X. And the idea was somebody claimed that they had been in a vault at MGM or a storage facility for Turner more specifically. And, and they saw it labeled as the hypnotist. Uh, that seems uh, that th that story itself, I, I don't think anybody believe, is it possible? Generally speaking, it's not impossible, but it was released as London after midnight. And so it seems unlikely somebody would have shelved it in 28 or nine uh, Un, un, under a title other than the release title but you know these things are possible you know I, I think the greatest find I can think of of the past uh, say 20 years for me personally was you know as a little kid from a little kid I bet this was true of Robert it might be true of all of us here uh, you know we heard of that the first horror film and it turns out it's not the first horror film or what we would call horror but that the first horror film was Georges Méliès The Devil's Castle Le Manoir du Diable from 1896 devil flies into a castle in the form of a bat you know then he's the devil he fights with a knight ghosts goblins witches show up um and it was lost and you know gosh we'll never be able to see it from the age of 10 i read about it probably and always wanted to see it and then it turned up in new zealand uh, at the film archive in new zealand and was released on dvd i don't know about 20 years ago and, and now you can watch it on YouTube, on your cell phone, anytime you want. But for all those years, you know, it's lost. We'll never see it. And uh, wasn't it, that also true of uh, like uh, Thomas Edison's Frankenstein, right? Yeah, that that was a, a somewhat similar story. In that case, it was uh, it was in the uh, collection of, of, of a gentleman that I met a couple of times now deceased named Detlaff, Al Detlaff. It was in a private collection. Uh, rather than an than a a, a a formal archive, you know, uh, but it was in a private collector's collection. Yeah, so these things do turn up, and you know, and and I think the fact we can now watch there's now there's a beautiful restoration the Library of Congress has done of the 1910 Frankenstein. They now own the print with Detlaf dead. To, to be able to watch the restoration of the Devil's Castle 1896 Frankenstein 1910 amazing unbelievable i'd encourage everybody to watch those they're so short it's easy to watch them uh so there's certainly room for london after midnight to turn up i guess many of us though are particularly skeptical of it over most other films because we've been burned hearing these stories these pranks these hoaxes all our lives you know it's, it's also worth noting that sometimes in terms of like story credits, sometimes you can't even trust information that was released by the original studio at the time. There's the case of uh, Monograms the Ape Man, which supposedly was based on a sh published short story called They Creep by Night, supposedly published in the Saturday Evening Post, but uh, <laughs> it seems as if no such story was ever published in the Saturday Evening Post, even though the monogram materials say that it was. Absolutely, absolutely, and and some of that stuff was clearly uh, fabricated publicity to make things sound more impressive, or this or that. And sometimes I think that that you know the synopses were written sometimes before the film was released. Uh, changes were made in editing, etc. I know uh, 
uh, Robert knows and, and, a, and a good longtime pal of mine, Donald F. Glute, you know, wrote the uh, novelization for The Empire Strikes Back. And he wrote it without having seen the film. You know, they gave him the script and different materials, but the film wasn't finished. So he wrote an entire, quote, book of the film for Empire Strikes Back, the one that's still in print 42 years later. And he hadn't seen the film when he wrote it. Uh, one, one of my battles is there's this tremendous film from 1908 horror film called Legend of a Ghost. At least that's what it's called and was called in America. That's where you can find it on YouTube. It still exists. Uh, the original 1908 English language synopsis claims a vampire is in it. Well, there's a ghost and there's some dragons and all kinds of cool creatures, but there, there doesn't seem to be a vampire. So what, where is it? Well, it's probably was just a mistake or whatever. And the person who wrote the synopsis, you know, 114 years ago. I, I was going to say in that regard, I, I think people should keep in mind. I, I think that at, at, in the early 20th century, it seems like, uh, you know, the, the sort of um, carny traditions and film traditions sort of mesh together um, even more so than they do today. I think we still see shades of it at times, but, you know, even before people like William Castle were doing, you know, wild gimmicks in, in movies like uh, The Tingler and whatnot. I mean, you had movies like, uh, you mentioned The Ape Man, Robert. Um, I think there was a sequel, Return of the Ape Man, which it lists like George Zuko as, as being in it, but I, I don't remember him being in it at all. And uh, I mean, there were all kinds of crazy publicity stunts done at that time. Like, um, I think uh, there was a publicity stunt involving Betty Grable, uh, famously, where the studio claimed that they insured her, you know, long, beautiful legs for a million dollars. It was all a publicity stunt. And uh, it seems like there was a lot of that kind of like uh, carny sort of uh, generating interest through publicity stunts and hoaxes going on at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, you had uh, Manly P. Hall supposedly hypnotizing uh Bela Lugosi on the set of um, uh, Black Friday uh, and um, Boris Karloff supposedly said that he thought that Bela must have been hypnotized because it was the only time he ever saw him put his back to the uh, camera uh, <laughs> when he was supposed to be suffocating in the closet but uh, pr probably a, uh, a publicity stunt I assume Gary rather than yeah, yeah. actually being hypnotized I, I think so. I mean, one of my favorites of these stories, I already mentioned Theta Bera, you know, and publicity, if you were reading it in the 1910s and some of the movie magazines claimed she was uh, a daughter of the Sphinx, the reincarnation of Cleopatra, born in Egypt, the sands of times forgotten. Uh, in actuality, her name was Theodosia Goodman and she was from Cincinnati, you know, so so there's a I think there's a real history of this. Uh, yeah, with uh, the fibs, the publicity, and 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 so forth. Yeah, uh, but Gary, you've had adventures trying to track down a film called uh, "Is It Lock Up Your Daughters?" Uh, oh yeah, yeah. There's there's been a a, a lot a, a lot that I've been after over the years. Uh, I just rediscovered a. This is a little off topic, but I just rediscovered a 1927 Will Rogers film that was believed lost, uh, not horror. Uh, so there, once again, things do turn up, but, but, but certainly always after some horror films, um, you know, and sometimes there's a bit of luck, a few frames, not footage, but frames of a Lugosi German silent film surfaced in the past uh, couple of years. The film Robert mentions Lock Up Your Daughters was 
seemingly a compilation of Lugosi clips with new footage of Lugosi talking about them, probably made for TV in 1950. The print's gone long missing, uh, all prints. And so that's one I've been on the trail of for a, a long, long time. Sometimes you, you know, you win and sometimes you don't. And that's, that's one I'm on the, the losing side of, you know, because we're looking for a lot of films and some turn up and some uh, unfortunately, we keep looking and 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 uh, they don't. Didn't you think you actually found it at one point, or it was actually another film just with that title on it? Well, uh, many years ago, uh, there there was a copy that was alleged uh, allegedly a copy of it, and then it turned out to be <laughs> all roads lead back to the Ape Man. It turned out to be a copy of the 1943 Ape Man with a re-release title, "Lock Your Doors." Ah. rather than the obscure, distinct film, uh, Walk Up Your Daughters. I was going to say there's another uh, Lugosi movie that I think you've uh, tried searching for, a lost Lugosi movie that, that's actually a, a telling of, uh, it's, a, it's a German retelling of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? The, I think it's called The yeah. Head of Janus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one uh, we, we've always been wanting to find, you know, it's Conrad Veidt from Caligari, Lugosi, with director F.W. Murnau from Nosferatu. The script we do have, thanks to uh, uh, Russell McGee, uh, and, and I'll be working with him and Bill Kaffenberger on getting that out, the script and the scripts from the Crips series. But the uh, film itself's not turned up. We, we you know, we, some, some interesting things have turned up. You know, I, I think it was my documentary film on Lugosi some years ago that had the surviving footage for the first time of his uh, only known fragment from his Hungarian film career. Uh, I found a print of uh, a film of his called Daughter of the Night that he made, uh, uh, Der Tanz auf dem Vulcan in Germany in 1920. Uh, some home movies, uh, including from the set of uh, You Will Find Out in Color with him and Karloff and Lori together bunch of radio shows over the years, too, uh, that I've been fortunate enough to find. The most recent one uh, from 1939 with Lugosi on the George Jessel show. Jessel, well-known comedian at the period, uh, forgotten largely now. He was, I guess, maybe best remembered now for helping to discover uh, Judy Garland. But uh, so stuff keeps turning up and we, we remain hopeful. But, uh, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm still not holding my breath on on a couple of these like London After Midnight. Uh, so my, uh, hmm? just all this talk of lost films, I thought I would uh, shove in shamelessly shove in a plug uh, for a book I wrote called Bell Lugosi's Dead, which is all it's fiction, but it's all about a guy who's obsessed with trying to track down the lost test footage of Bell Lugosi as the monster, uh, as opposed to Boris Karloff. Uh, yeah. That's another in, in Frankenstein, you mean? In, in the 1931 Frankenstein, the, the pre-James Whale version, uh, directed by Robert Flory, uh, who went on to direct Murders of the Remorgue with Bela Lugosi. Supposedly, there's this test footage that people have said exists, they've seen it, of, of Lugosi dressed up uh, like the monster, looking rather like the golem from Der Golem, supposedly. Um, and uh, so the, the, the plot of my novel revolves around this guy, um, in 1980s LA trying to track down this test footage. But, uh, but that's, that's another Holy grail is that Frankenstein. Yeah. Test footage. 
I, I, I would agree. I'd say two things really quickly. I think uh, Robert's book is one of my favorite novels, and I, I hope everybody gets it and reads it. I, I love all of his novels. I have a particular love for Bela Lugosi's Dead because I've spent so much time, you know, thinking about Lugosi in my life. I think the, the other thing I would say is, yeah, I think there really are three or four or five holy grails of lost films in horror Clearly, London After Midnight always tops the list, but uh, there are a few other things that would be equally amazing. I mean, I think if we had a top four or five, certainly the test footage of Lugosi as Frankenstein, uh, the Frankenstein monster would be one of them. Cheney's film, A Blind Bargain, uh, would be another. You know, there's a handful of these, uh, you know, maybe we, we would vary on on which we most want to show up. Uh, Lock Up Your Daughters with Lugosi would be one. Necklace of the Dead from 1910. There'd be a number of these, you know, a complete, uh, certainly uh, 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 The Golem and the Dancer from 1917. You know, there's a there's a handful of these that uh, I suppose we we have wish lists that are always longer, you know, than maybe they ought to be. Even even non horror ones like the Big City, which is a Todd Browning yeah. film that's lost, that would be wonderful if, if that came up. Abs- absolutely, there's several lost Browning things, and the Big City would be at the top of the list. I think we've already mentioned, you know, F. W. Murnau from Nosferatu, his lost film Four Devils uh, would be one. I think everybody's, uh, you know, maybe if you had to have a list globally of the most sought after lost films, London After Midnight would top it, regardless of genre. Four Devils would probably be next on most people's lists. The uh, the lost uh, Murnau Hollywood film after he went to uh, Hollywood. So bringing this back around, because I want to um, wrap it up, uh, talking again about Todd Browning. Uh, uh, and I have two questions that come to mind in regard to wrapping this up. The first is, you know, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure that filmmakers like Browning or even the studios uh, back in the early days of Hollywood realized how these films would kind of become immortal. Uh, You know, a movie like Freaks uh, ends up on the midnight movie circuit in the, I I believe the 1970s. And now, you know, everyone knows that line, right? You know, Gabba Gabba, hey, one of us, one of us. I mean, the Ramones literally took it from that movie. I mean, it's sort of become part of punk culture in a way. Uh, What do you think Browning would make of the fact that his films have sort of lived on? Robert, go ahead. I I think he'd be very pleased. You just mentioned the Ramones. I was going to mention if you didn't, but that's an example of his influence extending beyond just film. You know, and I already mentioned Ray Bradbury, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Again, the influence extending beyond film. But yeah, who could could, uh, predict that the influence of Freaks would... um, extend into Diane Arbus, you know, photography, uh, the Ramones into, into music. Um, that's just something that you could never, London After Midnight, you know, spawn an entire band, right? Uh, so, so these things are just, I'm sure Todd Browning would be uh, shocked and, and, and pleasantly surprised uh, I, I, all, all of those directors, you know, James Whale, uh, Carl Freund, all of them would probably be shocked and amazed. I, I agree very strongly. And I, I think uh, uh, on the subject of Browning, I think uh, Browning's not only lasted so very long, I think his films will continue to. And, and, and if nothing else, I think his films will, will outlast some of these kind of, uh, if I may say, boneheaded critics uh, of his work, you know. 
I think it's interesting too, because I think um, it, it's interesting how a lot of these films from yesteryear are now like reevaluated uh, by younger people. You know, I think there's been a lot of attention put on James Will's uh, Frankenstein, where I think younger people sort of can see the elements that may have reflected uh, the fact that James Will, the director, um, was like closeted at the time. I mean, he was gay. So, and I think people are, are like re-evaluating re that aspect of the film. And with Freaks, you know, I know uh, film school teachers that have taught Freaks and they're, they're teaching it and they're thinking the, you know, students are going to react uh, to, to how grotesque it, it comes off and maybe exploitative. But I've had film teachers tell me that a lot of the students react with, uh, I don't see the big deal. It's a revenge story. You know, I kind of sympathize with the circus people and I'm not sure that people at the time would have thought that. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because you have these critical reevaluations happening and younger people discovering the movies again. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about horror cinema, but really horror in general is how um, it, it keeps evolving and changing and uh, Mallory O'Meara recently published a book called uh, Lady from the Lost Lagoon, which is an interesting hybrid kind of creative nonfiction, also film history, also autobiography, and also biography. It merges all those things about Millicent uh, Patrick, who uh, created the, um, the, the Creature from the Black Lagoon uh, design and, and, and was not credited as such for many years. So Mallory O'Meara recently published this book that kind of merges a biography of Millicent Patrick. It's also cinema history about Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, and it's also about modern day uh, Hollywood and, and being a woman working in modern day Hollywood. And so uh, I often, um, there's a lecture that she gave at a bookstore in Washington, DC. I'll give it out as extra credit. I, I'll do Halloween themed extra credit for my creative writing students. And uh, that's one of the things I threw out there. And, and through that book, which is a recent book that just came out, they'll discover Creature in the Black Lagoon and, and, and students have gone and seen it and been absolutely captivated uh, by it. So uh, it's interesting how these films, the meaning of them changes because when you have a metaphor, when you have the perfect metaphor, it, 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 it's, it's elastic, it can change. I mean, Shakespeare's Hamlet, how many versions of Shakespeare's Hamlet has there, has there been? You, know, there, you can do a science fiction Hamlet, you can do a gay Hamlet, you can do all kinds of different Hamlets. Uh, and uh, it, it evolves and changes over the decades, but the core of the metaphor remains the same. And the same is true of Dracula and, and Frankenstein, which is why we get a new Frankenstein almost every couple of years, you know, a new cinematic version of Frankenstein or a, a new uh, comic book version of Frankenstein. Um, so I think that's why these films uh, maybe last longer than more realistic films at the time because of that living metaphor quality uh, that horror has always been so good at. And also, I guess uh, the question I wanted to ask Gary was, um, you know, when we talk about older films, especially black and white films, I still meet too many people that will say to me, oh, I can't watch those black and white movies or I can't watch something from the 1930s. It's it's too slow going or or, you know, I think people have weird apprehensions about films from the early days of Hollywood. And I, I, I think that they're missing out. I think it's a very rewarding experience to watch a lot of these films. And in a lot of cases, you know, I, I mentioned movies like The Black Cat, um, Burners in the Room Morgue, Freaks. These are films that are 
you know, I think even shocking today in a lot of ways, uh, because you, you look at them and you're like, wow, they dealt with that in the 1930s. This theme of, you know, like in the Black Cat, there's some sadomasochistic themes and things like that. Uh, I, I think they're actually very rewarding and shocking films. And a lot of them are more faster paced than I think people would realize. Uh, so what, what do you think uh, you would tell people who haven't checked out these older films uh, and how rewarding they are? Well, Robert and I are both uh, university professors, and I suppose I've been teaching film history and horror film history since uh, the mid-90s. So I suppose I'm a bit of a broken record at this point, encouraging people to watch these films. Some of the finest, of course, are black and white. You know, sometimes with students, depending upon what the course is, you know, getting them to watch something like Casablanca or, um, you know, The Black Cat can help get them past that initial hesitancy that this is old so I therefore it must be bad it's black and white so it therefore must be uh, dull I think your point is a really good one too that the films are usually faster paced than people expect including even in the overall running time you know where some of these films that you both that I love you hearing you both talk about ape man and black cat and so forth some of these films you know they're under 65 minutes long and so in that way, I think they, you know, often have a real uh, momentum to them rather than being slow or slow paced. I, I realize the particular hesitations or, or difficulties some people have with silent films because it's so very different to their sensibilities. You know, I mean, it's you think, it, um, well, go on with the silent film point, but. No, well, that, I think that's really it. I think, that, but but I think the other thing is, you know, what 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 uh, you know uh, effort w will we make? You know, I uh, I didn't love red wine the first time I drank it. Now I like it uh, quite a bit, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, but but the first time the taste was odd. So I think you know the first silent film, the first old movie we watch, you know, sometimes we have to maybe uh, you know uh, do a bit of work, uh, which is I think a great thing that can happen in a kind of as a postmodern audience member is to have to do a little, uh, a little, a bit, a wee bit of, of work and, and the rewards are, are, you know, uh, uh, in, probably infinite. I mean, Robert and I have been studying these films our whole lives. We'll keep doing it. Uh, keep returning to some of these same people like Todd Browning. And so, uh, I think, yeah, maybe it's an initial hump to uh, a hill to climb for some viewers, but, but uh, if they do, they'll be uh, so well rewarded. I, I was just going to add to that. And this will be the last thing I ask you is, um, do you think the biggest hurdle for some people maybe, because I don't see it mentioned that much, but I, I think one issue maybe with the early talkies that some people have is um, just the acting style. Like, uh, you know, I remember watching the movie, The Lost Weekend, um, which is the anti-alcoholism movie with uh, Ray Milan for people that don't know. Um, he won many awards for it, and it, it's it's a really great performance, but it's also a different style of acting than maybe the kind of acting we get, um, you know, uh, after the end of maybe the 60s when movies like Easy Rider came out. Do you think uh, people are maybe put off by the more stagey quality of the acting at times, and that's an initial hurdle? I, th I think that's a great point. In fact, to pick up on your reference to Easy Rider, I think the smartest thing I ever heard about film acting was said by Jack Nicholson. And he said it uh, in the 1990s, I believe. And he, of course, had been in films from the early 60s. And he said, even in terms of his own career, his own acting, 
he said in the 90s, I could no longer act now in the exact same style as I did in the 19, early 1960s because the perception of what's reality and what's realistic acting more specifically has changed. I've got a wonderful 1911 editorial from Moving Picture World, which was kind of a variety type publication in 1911. And of one film actor, uh, the editorial says, everybody in essence, I'm paraphrasing, the editorial says, everybody should just give it up and go home. This is the best that film acting can ever be. This will be the most realistic ever. And it was 1911 uh, rather than 2011 or 2022. So there is the regular shift that in what is realistic. I think it's true of acting. I think it's true of special effects. You know, as kids, we see special effects. Some right now will see special effects in the Marvel movies. In 30 years, they may no longer see those effects as quite as hyper-realistic as they might right now. So all of these things do shift, you know. I think for horror, what's great, and 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 some of the performances like Lugosi and Karloff and some of these, and horror, what's great is, is uh, the further we get away from the period in which they were made, no, they're not realistic to modern eyes, but that doesn't mean they're not wonderfully, uh, wonderful, wonderfully strange, you know. Uh, for a lot of these films, I think they're not unlike... Uh, you know, a, a, some strange, uh, crazy nightmare, even if dreamed by somebody a hundred years ago than ourselves, you know. Robert may wish wish to speak to this too as a final thought there. I, I In terms of introducing these films to newer generations, uh, just the other day I showed my daughter, who's 14, I showed her The Leopard Man, the Val Luton film. And uh, I, I can never predict what she's gonna like and what she's not gonna like. I, I really, I, I gave, up, gave up predicting that a long time ago but she absolutely loved The Leopard Man. And later on, she was finding clips of it on YouTube and showing it to her friends, the scene where at the beginning where she's knocking on the door and then the blood comes through the, under the door. Uh, she really loved it and wanted to watch another one. So I showed her the ghost ship and she, and she loved that too. Um, and uh, there's something weirdly, um, um, something about those, the Val Luton films particularly uh, that they were more a more realistic um, approach to horror. I somehow appeals to her in, in some way that I can't um, put my finger on. But I always tell my creative writing students, you know, an old saw is, and it's true, is if you want to discover a new idea, read a very old book. Um, and that's true of film as well. If you're a young filmmaker, you want to discover a new idea, go watch a very old film. Uh, because um, I, I remember um, my friend Jack Womack, who who uh, is a novelist, he wrote Random Acts of Senseless Violence. Um, he recommended that I read The Gangs of New York, uh, which the 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 book upon which the film is based, The Gangs the of Scorsese New York. Scorsese movie, yeah. Scorsese film. It's uh, it's nonfiction, and it was published, um, you know, er, early uh, 1900s. A and uh, um, when I read the book my friend, Jack Womack, he's written a series of books that take place in the future of New York. Uh, and when I read Gangs of New York, I suddenly realized, I asked Jack, I said, Jack, was your vision of the future, which is very realistic and very convincing, was your vision of the future based on the New York and Gangs of New York? He said, yes. <laughs> so his, his way of evoking a convincing sense of a future New York was to base it on the past New York, 
uh, depicted in Gangs of New York. And so that, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect example. If you want to find a new idea, uh, go read a very old book or see a very old film. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And I, I hope we've given listeners an idea of the, you know, wonderful filmography of a number of directors, but especially Todd Browning, who uh, I'm glad that he's getting a critical reevaluation because I, he's one of my favorite of those directors from that era of Hollywood. And I want to thank you both. Uh, if you could, Gary, can you plug uh, Scripts from the Dead number 12 again? And uh, Robert, uh, I'd, lo- I'd, lo- I'd love for you to uh, maybe uh, tell my listeners just a little bit about Bela Lugosi's Dead as well. Uh, so Bela Lugosi's Dead, I, oh, look, I just so happen to have it right here. Isn't that amazing? Uh, published by Crossroad uh, Press just last year. Um, it's, it's all about a guy who uh, runs a, uh, a, a, um, a magazine all about uh, horror films in the 1980s Los Angeles, and he becomes obsessed with trying to track down the lost test reels of Bela Lugosi as the Frankenstein monster rather than Boris Karloff. And this, this leads him into um, very strange and, and dark areas. And there are char- uh, Vampira is a character in the book and uh, uh, Bela Lugosi Jr. And um, Manly P. Hall is a character in the book. Uh, and it was, it was uh, uh, recommended and blurred by none other, none other than Alan Moore, who wrote Watchmen and Beef of Vendetta, but also Gary D. Rhodes. So it's recommended by Alan Moore and Gary Rhodes. How can you go wrong? I think you should definitely buy a copy and read it on Halloween. Bell Lugosi's dead. You can get it on Amazon. Also, I love the title since that's, you know, I know, I know it's like the ultimate um, stereotypical goth thing to say, but I love Bauhaus. So I, I was amazed by the fact that no one had ever titled the novel Bell Lugosi's dead. <laughs> and Gary, if you want to let my listeners know how they can get a copy of Scripts from the Dead number 12, Revolt of the Dead. Right. The uh, title, and we put Todd's name in the title. So the title is actually Todd Browning's Revolt of the Dead, available at all fine bookstores, particularly you can find it in Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com, or even the publisher's own website, and that's Bear Manor Media. But Todd Browning's Revolt of the Dead, the first time in print uh, of this long forgotten but really wild screenplay. I also, you should check out Gary's Becoming Dracula, Volume 1 and 2, written by Gary Rhodes and Bill Kaffenberger, also Bear Manor, correct? Uh, correct. Thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, there's lots. Bear Manor does lots of great stuff, including a book that uh, Robert Guffey and myself co-wrote uh, once upon a time about Bela Lugosi and the Monogram Nine. So I think everybody would enjoy, I hope, checking out their entire catalog. I was going to say, too, it's available in a number of places, but uh, one place that I would suggest picking it up, I'm assuming they're carrying it, is uh, the great website, uh, Creepy Classics, who do the Monster Bash movie convention. I'm sure they'll be uh, carrying this title as well. I sure hope so. Thanks very much for mentioning them. Lugosi's 140th birthday was two days ago, by the way. Wow. (laughs) Didn't (laughs) even realize that. This is a good uh, uh, little tribute to him in a way. Yes. So thank you both, Gary Rhodes and Robert Guffey, for coming back on Parallax Views. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of the Parallax Views Spooky Season Spectacular. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gary D. Rhodes and Robert Guffey 
be sure to check out their new book, Scripts from the Crypt, number 12, Todd Browning's The Revolt of the Dead. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween. <laughs>